Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Good morning. Morning. It's good to be back. It is. We are vaccinated and healthy and... <laughs> we'll <laughs> get there we anyway. That's right. <laughs> On the journey. Yeah. Yep. It's it's liberating. Yes. It feels liberating, especially yep. since the first day in both cases for me was pretty tough. Yeah. But I'd much rather have that than go through the the actual virus again. <laughs> yeah. That was way worse. Way worse. Yeah. Um you and we should say it again in case people missed it on the last episode that we're gonna do an in person conference up here in Crested Butte this summer, right? August. We are, yeah, like August fifteenth or something. Uh, yes, I, I, it's around then. You know, it'll be on. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll set up the whole website, websites, and everything. Um, yeah, it's I realized STFU, STFU, the Summer, Summer Tech, Tech Forum, Forum Unconference. Unconference. Yeah. Yes, that was suggested by. Uh, Several people on the various That's, news groups and okay. Slack channels and stuff. Maybe next winter we'll have WTF again, and then yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, because this I'm actually because a lot of people haven't been out here in the summer, and so they don't know how amazing it is. Yeah, and I imagine once people come, they'll go, "Oh, we need, we definitely need to have a." I'd love to do summer more in winter. I really great. enjoy these things. This is something that gives me a lot more energy than it takes. So yeah. Those are things that I like to do. Um, the one thing I realized after getting the reservation at our at the hall where we hold it was, oh wait, in the summer we have often monsoon season mm -hmm. when it rains in the afternoon and it's clear in the morning. It changes so, our schedule from in the wintertime we do sessions in the morning and play in the afternoon. Right. In the summertime, got to flip it. Right. So I I have a request in to to change that but okay. that's the only thing that might change the dates but i think it's still okay yeah so anyway um yeah that's a lot of people looking forward to that i yeah. think there's a hunger for and and the rate that vaccinations are happening you know that will be wear masks that will be a request is that people be vaccinated yeah to to come but that shouldn't be um mm. unreasonable yeah by then, I think our whole county is going to be basically vaccinated in the next month. So yeah, right, which is important because a lot of tourists come through here, so yeah. a lot of potential exposure. Yeah. So you've been thinking about build tools again. Uh, I've been stuck in build tools. Well, for, in particular, for twenty years now. Uh, well, most of those I've been able to to deal with. I mean, usually the build tools with the books, I automatic i write a program that will automatically generate the configuration so it's not so hard to understand yeah. that i can do that but um yeah i i started thinking about things that you don't want to do when you're designing a build tool and there are things like i think we've agreed that ultimately a build tool needs to have a programming language behind it of some kind. And you should probably invent one for that purpose would be a good idea, right? I don't think so. I think invent, oh, you're being sarcastic. Okay. But people do. Oh, of course they do. And, and then they discover that, oh no, this is way harder than I thought. And now I'm doing a language instead of a build tool. Yeah. Um, I mean, you saw that, I saw that happen with make. Yeah. Cause you, you just go, you know, they just kept adding features. A slippery until they slope. Go, of... It is a slippery slope. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, use an existing language. But I think one of the problems with Gradle and using Groovy is that here you got Java programmers and Gradle says, hey, Groovy, it's like Java, but it isn't. It's like it sort of looks like Java, but it has so many different. So you have to learn this. I mean, I can understand the draw when mm -hmm. Han started creating sure. Gradle to use Groovy because he wanted something that had a build DSL, you know, something that provided a nice kind of declarative syntax with some, some, you know, using Java, I think would have been a bad idea. Oh, really? Yeah. See, cause I feel like if, I mean, you're, it would look terrible. Like your, your build definition would be just hideous. Yeah. But you'd understand it. You, you would wouldn't be it. learning a new language. Yeah. I would say, I mean, my approach would be, 
if you're creating a build tool for Java programmers, either use Java or use something so different. XML, let's say. <laughs> well, that's not a language, but um, but I mean, use something like Python. Yeah. You know, it's like, so it's very clearly not Java, yeah, yeah. whereas Groovy is kind of like, oh yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a lot like Java, except when you try and do Java things with it, no, it's, it's different. Yeah. So it, it, it confuses you. Yeah. And the other thing is, I don't think I would use, uh, I, I don't think the value of the, the DSLs that they use, you know, where you have the configuration, there was a lot of things they did, I think, just to save, oh, let's, let's see if we can cram this into smaller and smaller things. And now mm. we've got it. So all you do is import a plugin yeah. and all this magic happens. It's like, do you want all it? You know, if you do too much magic, it just becomes a weird black box. Yeah. And so, and I don't or find it requires that, a magician to understand it. Yeah. I think I would, I don't think the DSL actually creates enough value for the confusion mm. that it introduces to yeah. me. I think I'd rather just do function calls and say, configure this using this function call, configure that, you know, yeah. just be less mental hoops to jump through. Yeah. In some ways I appreciate the Maven model of when you're in the declarative world of XML, which is where most people spend most of their time, it's so significantly limited in what you could do that it does make it more easily understandable. Mm -hmm. And then if you do need more power, you drop down to Java and you write, you write additional stuff in Java. Mm -hmm. In some ways I appreciate that model because at least it's clear. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. it, uh, it's not fun when you have to go into the Java side of things. Yeah. To, to write a, a Maven plugin. Because I'm sure there's some sort of complex API that requires a lot of uh, study to understand. It just is, it opens up a, a can of worms that's not very fun to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, the API is actually not too bad. Yeah. But um, I, I still think that SBT is one of the better models for a build tool because it's immutable, it's Scala, so you have an actual general purpose You're language. programming in Scala, your SBT is in Scala. See, yeah. that's my point. Yeah. So do, it, do it that way or just do it with a language which is uh, designed to be simple. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I would really love to explore one of these build tools that uses DAL, the DAL language as D-H-A-L-L. It's okay. like the, the um, Indian mm -hmm. um, dish. Uh, I think that's D-A-H-L. D, oh, maybe. I think doll. It's the same huh. spelling as the lentil soup. I think so, but maybe I'm wrong okay. about that. Well, anyway. I'm pretty sure the language is D-H-A-L-L. Okay. Um, but I, I, I would love to explore the idea that you should have a language that is not general purpose. Mm-hmm statically typed mm -hmm. functional and and uh yeah maybe harder to learn for somebody who's a not a doll developer but i think that the, there are Braille. sufficient constraints on the language that mm -hmm. that the learning curve is is potentially not that bad but mm -hmm. um there's a couple of build tools that use doll so I, I need to i need to give them a try one was for like c or c plus plus and I can't yeah. remember what the other one was for, but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think, I think that like the episode where we talked about how serialization on the surface seems like this simple problem. And then it turns out that many decades later, we're still trying to solve the serialization problem. And it turns out that it is not a simple problem. I think build tools are in the same, same bucket where, it's like, gosh, why do all build tools suck? And it's like, well, maybe the problem that we're solving is actually really hard. But then also I think that maybe we also haven't necessarily uncovered the right foundational pieces that need to be there. Right. Well, mental model kind of things Yeah, that we're talking about. Like SBT, the fact that the build definition is immutable, it's really hard to use a build tool that doesn't use that paradigm for me. So when you say immutable, well, for example, like Gradle has um, life cycle things. 
Yeah. And I'm guessing that it's like, there's some magic state machine right. and when mutations get applied to the build configuration happens at some, some seemingly random point in execution. Unless you know the deep underlying details in yeah. which case you know when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Just that, that, that life cycle is, there is a life cycle. There is a state that is uh -huh. things happen, things change other things happen. It just is very confusing and very hard to debug. Whereas with SPT, you can go into SPT and be like, what is the value of this thing? And SPT will tell you exactly what the value of that thing is. Okay. So based on that, I would say that things like maybe make files and ant files would be immutable. Hmm. Cause I don't think there's yeah. anything that changes. I think that in the case of, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe cause, cause it's really just this like flat procedural thing. Maybe it is more, more immutable. Mm -hmm. Um, SPT though, will actually, it does the whole, like, like directed acrylic graph stuff that Gradle does to manage dependencies and run things in parallel and all that, like that all happens, but the, the model for how you define the build configuration is immutable. Mm. And so you don't have to know that when something changed, why it changed, dig into the source code for why this thing changed. Right. Yeah. So does it do it right at the beginning? It creates the directed acyclic graph? Uh, SPT. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so when you, when you load the build and it parses all the configuration and gets uh -huh. to the state yeah. of the build, then, then yeah, it, that's your state that it's going to run. And it stays the same forever. Yeah. There, there are a few caveats to that, which remember when we were working on our Scala three book build stuff, mm -hmm. you can do a dynamic task, which kind of gets around some of that. Um, so there are a, a few ways to, um, to circumvent the, the normal behavior, but the normal behavior of, of SPT is, yeah, the, it, it essentially parses the build mm. configuration or runs the build configuration gets gets to a state and then runs tasks against that state mm. okay well yeah there's so i think that's one of the things that build tools should do is future build tools should mm -hmm. should have a immutable configuration model that that's been super helpful especially for debugging cuz I think with any build tool, you have to debug your build and debugging a Gradle build is no fun at all. I don't even know what the price My strategy is. is printlens, just add printlens, print things out. But then that gets hard because as the time that I'm printing this thing, is that the right time? Because it's not immutable. Mm -hmm. And so I can print something and then later the value can be changed and... And then I, you know, what the value that I'm seeing is not the value that's actually being used when it runs the task. And when you put it that way, it sounds <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. No, it's not fun to debug Gradle builds. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Matt Rabel tweeted yesterday. He's like, which, which build tool will you use on, uh, on future on a future project maven or gradle and um and and i was like man i wish there was a good third option and there's there's just not yet a good third option hmm. yeah so we're still befuddled about build tools maybe maybe you know somebody needs to do a phd dissertation or whatever on build tools or we need a language designer to look at it somebody who's you know, just has a bigger brain than ours. Yeah. But is I also mean, Hans compassionate. has a much bigger brain than ours. Who does? Hans. Oh yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> he can keep all that stuff in his head, but yeah, but, but also with compassion for the end user to be able to say, what mental model does the end user need? Yeah. Not what mental <clears throat> model, you know, not that it's a directed acyclic graph of dependencies. That doesn't help me figure out how to solve my problem. Yeah. <clears throat> I can understand on, on the designer, the build designer side, sure. 
the things you need to think about are caching, you know, configuring, reading, writing files, all that kind of stuff. The user doesn't care about. I mean, obviously they care that things are cached and are fast, but but that's not the problem they're trying to solve. They, exactly. Yeah. 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 And maybe that's one of the problems with build tools is that build tools are written with different goals in mind than the, than the end user, than the users of those build tools have. Yeah. And you, I think maybe what's necessary is to say, Oh, we have more than one mental model here. We have the mental model of the constructor of the build tool. And then we have the mental model of the end user. And I think when you don't, if, if you don't keep that in mind, you end up with something that uh, the end user looks at and goes, I, I don't know where to start, what to do. I have all these options. I don't even know what all the options are. I don't know what I can ask for. Yeah. Any of those things. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. One, one reason why I continue to use Gradle usually on new projects is the continuous mode where it continuously like recompiles, reruns mm. stuff. Corcus, the Corcus framework has that for Maven, which, and it's done really well. Corcus has done a lot to, to create a really nice developer experience and you can use Maven or Gradle, but their Maven support has that continuous mode, which was awesome. is awesome. But because I mostly use Kotlin and Corcus does not yet support Kotlin coroutines. Mm. So I'm like, oh, I want to use Corcus, but until there's Kotlin coroutine support, I just can't really use it for anything mm. real. I've you know built little hello world things with it, but for anything real, it's like if I'm in Kotlin, I'm going to use coroutines. I know they're working on coroutine support in Corcus, but hmm. so um, we came across a topic. Uh, I don't know last time or the time of time before. I think when you brought up um, uh, reactive, reactive, one, yeah, and you know, I feel like that was one of those things where I just kind of said. I, this is a new thing. It maybe it's kind of heavily biased towards, uh, I don't know, stuff I'm not interested in right now. Anyway, I skipped it all. So, yeah. Um, what is, yeah. What's the deal? What's the mental model for reactive? Yeah. Um, it's, it's weird because with reactive really what the problem that it's solving is, is efficiency for for the for the machine <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because reactive is what it so there's the reactive manifesto which um, the the type safe light bend folks uh, came up with a long time ago is that while you, while you were there uh-huh oh. yeah yeah I worked with with Jonas um, Bonner and, and Victor Klang and um, uh, Roland um, on that. Uh, it was mostly they're you know they're the Aka folks, and so so a lot of it was was written from kind of their perspective. And what I've since realized is that there's kind of like two different sides of reactive. There's the 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 Aka side is um, is about trying. It, it kind of takes the mental model of Erlang, where it's mm -hmm. like all right, we're we have a hierarchy of things that communicate. And we need to be able to uh, handle that communication in a way that that is efficient, but is also uh, able to recover from when things go wrong. And this is like the actor supervision model. So that's where the reactive manifesto really comes out of is is trying to uh, pull, categorize that stuff. And there's, uh, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, the four categories of the reactive, uh, the, the reactive manifesto, but um, there's another side of reactive, which has been more on the, the side that I've focused more of my energy on, which is really just non-blocking IO and non-blocking IO. The whole reason for it is just because it's more efficient to be non-blocking. So I, you're, this is going to get, um, in the weeds for a bit, and then hopefully you can help m pull me out of the weeds. But what what happens usually in a program is 
you you are communicating from one thing to another thing. And that could be from your in-memory process to the file system or across the network. And those things take take a long time to, to do that relative to what you're doing in process. And if your process is just sitting there waiting for that thing to complete, then it's wasting resources that it could otherwise be using for something else. And so the, the whole point of, of non-blocking reactive stuff is to allow the program to continue and go off and do other things. And then once that other thing completes, then you can resume execution of that thing. So it's really just an efficiency for the machine. But everything that you said, I could put async in instead of reactive and it would still be true. Uh, async doesn't necessarily mean that it's non-blocking. And I think that that's part of why the reactive term um, gained some um, some usage over just saying async. So back in the weeds for a second, mm -hmm. the way that, and, the, and my understanding of this is not like super awesome or deep, but the way that I understand the, the way that the actual like networking path on Linux and, and um, Windows works is that you've got this like, like network loop happening <clears throat> and uh, that it's, it's, it's looking to see, okay, do I have an 8K byte chunk in my buffer that I can then pass to the program, something like that. And so the, um, you've got this loop happening on the, the network IO channel and it's passing the data in, but you, on the program side, you, you, if you're just waiting for a whole response to come back from like an HTTP request or a database request or whatever, like you want your program to be able to go off and do other things. And then that, that, that loop is happening on the network channel, uh, accumulating some, some bytes and then accumulating them somewhere in some buffer. And then when the thing is fully completed, then resume the execution of your user code. And so, um, that that's the non-blocking IO piece. Why that's different from async is you can be async without necessarily not being you can you can be blocking on the IO channel and still have a program that is that is async. So usually when I talk about reactive, I, I combine async and non-blocking. Um so if you so an example of this is that you can use the JDBC driver and in Java, which is the normal way to communicate to a database, and that I.O. is blocking. So what that means is that there's going to be a thread allocated to your database, JDBC database request from the time that you make the call to the time you get the response. There will be a thread allocated to that that is mostly just sitting around waiting for the response to come back and for all the bytes to be there. And, and that is just a waste of a resource that could be used for something else. In, in the non-blocking world, you actually like fire off the request. You, you do have that non-blocking IO loop, usually uh, Java NIO on the JVM, um, usually uh, Netty, which is- Are we talking like an event NIO. loop? Uh-huh. Yep. So it's, it's going around saying, are you done, are you done, are you done? Yeah. Okay. As, as far as I understand it. Okay. And so, so there is, there is that like loop. There is that. And I'm sure that there are, um, but it's multiple not a threads. thread. It's not a thread per, per request, essentially. It's a, th it will see it's like got a thread pool in Python. You have an event loop, which is doing that for its async. Yeah. And it's just one thing. It's not a, bunch of threads okay yeah and so so why this is different is in in normal blocking code your your code is just going to execute top to bottom and and the there isn't a way for the program to be able to to deallocate its resources and then when that event loop says all right i have something for you then resume the execution and continue there isn't a way to do that and so that's why you have to be async 
as well to be non-blocking. So you've got the event loop, which allows you to be non-blocking, but then your program has to have the ability to resume execute or to suspend and resume um, when that thing, when the non-blocking loop tells you it has something for you. Um, so, so you, you could be async. So you can actually like, like put async on top of JDBC, some blocking protocol and, and, uh, and make it async, but there's really not a lot of value to doing that unless it's actually non-blocking under the covers. And so what's happened is a lot of the HTTP clients, database clients, any network is an easy one, but a lot of those have, have switched over or, or there have evolved new protocols that are now actually non-blocking underneath the covers. Mm -hmm. the, the first generation of this was they would just slap async interfaces, you know, wrap blocking calls into futures, completable futures, whatever, but it really wasn't value. There wasn't much value there until it was actually non-blocking as well. So let me give you my current mental, mental model for what async means. Yeah. So it's a, for, it's a trick. And that is, well, think about what's the normal thing, synchronous calls. So you call a function and it's synchronous because you wait until the function completes and then you go on. Yeah. That's a synchronous call. Yeah. What is an asynchronous call? You call a function and it gets somewhere and it says, oh, I'm waiting on this. I would, I mean, this thing's going to take a while. What I'd like to do is return control to the caller. And, um, and to do that, I have to put in something that allows me to suspend this function in the middle and, you know, do it some, it's like, well, one way you could do it or ways we've done that before is like, well, you could have callback hell, you yeah. could have all these. So what, the async mechanism is something where you, you go, okay, well, <clears throat> we can we can stop this and return control to the caller. And now it's it's basically the same kind of thing that you would do with a thread. You go, oh, I'll, I'll fire off a thread here. Now I got this thing running, and then I got my main thing running. And at some point later, well, I don't know, how do we do that? We have, we have some mechanism for coming back to that function right. when it's ready. Okay, um, but I don't see, I mean, to me, that's because otherwise the function would block. You know, I'd call the function and would say, oh, I'm waiting to get, you know, something from this website. So I'm going to just stop and wait. Now it's blocked. Async allows you to not block this function. Right. But I feel like you're maybe talking about something else when you say non-blocking. Uh non-blocking i'm i'm talking mostly about non-blocking io because io is a really good thing to be able to be to do to wrap async around sure uh you 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 can't really be non-blocking without having some form of doing async yes. um but you can be async without being non-blocking so okay uh, that's the part i don't understand because okay. so let's take assume. an example of this as um Sometimes in a in a program you you want to have like a delay. You want to mm -hmm. say, "All right, um, I for some strange reason I'm going to call this function, and I and I in that function I want it to just wait ten seconds to call me back." <clears throat> mm -hmm. And uh, and so you you can do that in both a blocking way and a non-blocking way. Okay, and when you wrap async around that, then that allows you as the caller to, to suspend and resume your execution until that, that delay is, is, is completed. Mm -hmm. um, in the world of Java, the way that you would implement a blocking um, delay is with thread.sleep. Because when you do thread.sleep, you, your thread is still allocated and and the JVM will say, okay, uh, um, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put this thread in a wait state and, and then it's going to, after the uh, number of specified milliseconds or whatever, it's going to resume. 
and the JVM does and that. And the for function you. that is calling thread.sleep is just going to stop and not. That's right. Yeah. Harm. Yeah. Uh, there, if you move into the non-blocking async world, then you can have a delay and the way that the, so, uh, Aka, I mean, look, that just sounds like a bad design to me. Is that because it's, it just seems like that, that was one of the many, many bad designs that they put into Java at the beginning. Thread.sleep. Thread.sleep. Yeah. Well, threads, all of the threads. Yeah. I mean, was it bad and well, they're working on, on changing that with, um, project, uh, is it Loom or, um, Loom, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to green threads or enabling an alternative, which is fiber model of, of underlying concurrency, whatever. So, so they, they are working on a new model for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Threads are just, they turned out to be really heavyweight, right? Like there, there's a lot of resources. It's like 700 megabytes per thread or something like that, you know, yeah. or K or anyway, there's a whole bunch of memory. There's a whole, yeah. I mean, again, the default thread size is, is a few megabytes. Or yeah, that's right. But, right. You know. Yeah. I, but again, that just sounds like a bad design. It doesn't sound like a fundamental concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the so async where you can be non-blocking, async is is necessary to to be able to handle that. Mm -hmm. And react, or it's a strategy because I mean there's uh, there's other yeah. there's other ways to do that that are worse. But yeah, I mean Go has channels or something mm -hmm. which is similar. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there are, there are many, you could use an actor model. You, there are, there are many different strategies for how you handle essentially async, like, like right. the, the, and then there's callback hell. There's callback hell. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's monads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways to, to handle reactive or mm -hmm. async, non-blocking, um, and Kotlin coroutines, um, mm -hmm. um, uh, my favorite recently is is Scala Zio, mm -hmm. uh, which solves similar problems. And so, so what what's happened is that we we've realized that just this uh, crazy waste of resources that was blocking I/O, and so most modern stuff has said, "All right, we're going to be non-blocking anywhere that we can." And that's database drivers, HTTP clients, all that kind of stuff. Is Any now, place where you cross a boundary from one processor to another. Yeah. Uh, uh, process. Um, so the easiest places to be non-blocking are network IO and file IO. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, assuming that this the file is being controlled by a yeah anyway go on um so so most most modern stuff is now non-blocking it just is obvious that, that we shouldn't just waste resources because our programming model forces us to and so the programming model has now has now shifted where now developers have to think about async which creates a much harder programming model for how we deal with this, but it's required in order to take advantage of non-blocking. So there's a, there's a number of different ways that on the JVM that you can be non-blocking async, um, many different libraries, many different uh, approaches. In Scala, there's Futures, there's Zio, there's Cats, there's a number of other ones. In, in Kotlin, mostly people just use coroutines. Uh, or the flow API if you're doing stream-oriented non-blocking stuff. And then, so the streams, do we call them streams in Java? Or are they, no, they're, anyway, the. Yeah, it's streams. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and that's a similar thing that that's in Java 8? Uh, I, those are not reactive. Um streams and, and non-blocking gets is a whole nother interesting thing and this is where the the same folks that created the reactive manifesto created the reactive reactive streams uh specification and now a lot of the jvm based stream libraries 
are based on the reactive streams specification and that is is uh, reactive obviously the name says it um, and so there's a number of implementations of reactive streams and then there's a bunch of higher level apis for doing stream non-blocking stream oriented stuff i've mostly used aka streams which is a nice reactive based on it's built on top of aka so it's actors but you could also use rx java is is one option there's another option that corcus uses by default that's based on vertex tons and tons of different options um, for how you do this and uh ultimately what it's all about in terms of uh, the non-blocking stuff is just being more efficient Mm-hmm. not wasting threads and resources when you don't need to but it but it complicates the programming model significantly it's a leaky abstraction well it's just as necessary um you your normal your normal program is written in this imperative style and there's no there's no way to be like okay here is where i can suspend and come back later i Kotlin coroutines is, you know, one example where they built into the programming model. And so you, you write something that seems imperative and then the compiler, you know, figures out like, okay, here's the points where I can now, uh, suspend execution and resume. And, and so, so Kotlin does a lot of stuff to make the programming model nicer for you. Um, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I use monads mostly for this kind of thing because it sure, enables monad reactive chaining of stuff. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, because I'm a monad guy. I think the thing that confused me about this is that, like in Python's async, it's not, you know, there isn't a um, blocking it's like the non-blocking aspect is built in because, well, why wouldn't you? I mean, why would you have the blocking thing when you're doing some kind of async? Yeah. So so the fact that you're telling me, oh, and this is why I'm arguing, oh, that sounds like a bad design. If it blocks and you're trying to wrap it into any kind of a concurrency model. Yeah. Uh, I think Ruby is interesting in this respect because they don't really have threads in Ruby. Hmm. And so I'm sure this has changed, but at one point you couldn't really do non-blocking in Ruby because there was no, to be non-blocking, you have to, you have to have something that, that is doing this like event loop thing and, and suspending and resuming things, Mm -hmm. but managing the actual like communication from the network usually, and then, and then managing the calls to user code. And you, you have to have threads to do that. Um, and I think when Python added their async stuff, they essentially implemented that like event loopy thing for you. There is an event, there's a default event loop and you can put your, you can write your own event loop or plug yeah. your own event loop in, but it's so, very, it, it, you know, it's relatively easy to understand, you know, it's just going around checking things right. and running things. Well, I think it's got some randomization in there so that it doesn't bias mm. it towards some tasks, but, um, but it's the model is, I think easier to understand. Although I had Luciano explain it to me. So <laughs> I have an advantage there because yeah. there were questions like, wait a minute, how do you know when something has happened and eventually it gets down to the operating system level. Yeah, yeah. So it ties this thing in with the operating yeah. system and it says, yes. And it, and it hmm. flips a bit and then your event loop sees the bit. And yeah. it, but I didn't have that full yeah. um, thing, thing before I was able to, it's really nice to have somebody you can just ask endless questions <laughs> and has all the answers Yeah, because he's worked it all out. Yeah. I mean, ultimately you, you have to have that like OS level mm-hmm. uh, event loop. You, you have to get there. But people don't always say that. So you don't, I mean, when somebody's trying to build their mental model, yeah, there's this question mark. It's, I don't know how Python does it, but it certainly gets a little tricky when you get into, all right. So imagine that you, that you have 
you know, you've got your event loop and it's like calling all these, these things. And you probably have some, some very limited thread pool for the user code. Let's say that you, let's say your thread pool for your, the user code that's actually like executing in response to these events, let's say it's 10, 10 mm -hmm. threads. Um, and so that allows you to do 10 things concurrently. But what happens if all of a sudden you, your, uh, all of those thread pool slots are all blocked and your event loop then can't, can't do anything else. It can't process any other user code. And so, so what, what's just waiting. It's just checking. Just, yeah. It's just things. like, Hey, are all you done yet? Nope. Are there any slots and, mm -hmm. and all 10 are full. And so then it's just as building up a buffer of things that is ready to send on to the user code and execute the user code, but it can't. And so, um, so what, what, typically is recommended in the JVM space for this is that things that you know to be blocking or take a long time, you actually allocate a fixed thread pool to, you actually delineate and say, these are my blocking operations, give these things a special thread pool. And then you leave your non-blocking stuff on the like very small thread pool because you know that the, the those slots are going to open up quickly um, because they're non-blocking. And so you're going to be able to like reschedule <clears throat> things onto those slots. And so then you have to, as a programmer, delineate, these are the blocking things and the, or when I say blocking, it could actually be non-blocking, but just take a long time uh, doing some heavy processing or something like that. So you're get, you have to delineate as the developer. These are the things for that thread pool. These are the things for this thread pool, for the non-blocking thread pool. And it just is... Um, it's hard to do concurrency without this kind of leaky abstraction thing. Because it's like, oh, well, we have all these different strategies. Which one do you choose? Well, it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. Uh -huh. You could try this one. It might not work that well. And then you try another one. It's like there's no one of the nice things about Go is that it has this pretty basic kind model. It gives you one way to do it. <laughs> it gives you, well, I think it's not. I mean, I, don't they also have some other. I think you just get channels. And that's, yeah. Co communicating sequential processes, which is really nice but i thought you could do like um actors and things i haven't I seen that, actors and go but what am i thinking oh well i don't know maybe um, not but i mean you know not having to go oh now i have a whole nother problem to solve which is figuring out how to and, and the whole point of all of this is as you say optimizing performance and so it's all about which ones you you know, which knobs you twist and yeah. which strategies you choose. And it, and it depends heavily on what you're doing, how you're doing it and all those kinds of things. So another aspect to this is around CPU caches. So when you're doing multi-threaded stuff, one of the reasons why you want to have a, a small number of thread pools is, is one, because the, the context switching with threads is pretty heavy. And two, you, the, better you can keep your CPU caches in line with, you know, what you're doing, the, the faster things are going to run. And so one of the strategies that, that some, uh, so like play framework, I remember implemented, uh, thread trampolines or something like this. I remember and this, term. this was the ability for when your when your async thing resumes, wouldn't it be really nice if you could resume it on the same thread so you don't as you were on before? Switch. So you don't have the context switch, and hopefully you have the CPU cache. Like hopefully that thread is being scheduled on the same CPU because you have a small number of threads. And so, yeah, one again, one of those things where, man, it turns out to be a really complicated problem. And, and one of the annoying things is that it takes the developer having to figure out which strategy do I use where, and that depends heavily on what you're trying to do. The and, context and you're working the in. The performance that you need. and the, Yeah. Yeah. So I try to scare people away from using any kind of concurrency. Just like the only reason for it is for performance. And if your performance is okay, don't mess with it. Don't like, go, don't go asking for trouble. It's like, if your performance isn't okay, well, you know, look at the different approaches you can take. You know, maybe you can uh, do something using a different architecture with different language or whatever. 
um, to solve that problem. But gosh, because wading into concurrency is like, oh, you thought you had this problem. And it's the joke that people have about regular expressions. It's like, now you have, well, now you have not two problems, you have dozens of problems. And it's like, wow. And is there any way for us to make this simpler? I, I don't know. I think it's going to take people smarter than you or me to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, the, the good thing is, is that the ecosystems are generally defaulting now to non-blocking. Yeah. Which is, which is usually a good choice. Oh, sure. Um, not always. So, so not, uh, reactive is actually slower than, than non-reactive. So because of context switch or, uh, all sorts of reasons, but you can imagine, all right, if I, if I know that I'm going to have this giant stream of bytes coming in, it's, it's a whole lot more efficient just to keep something allocated and just constantly read those, those bytes versus being, going through this event loop and constantly checking, are you done yet? Do you have more to send me? Are you done yet? Uh, is your buffer full? Um, so the, the event loop actually has overhead to it that makes it on the throughput perspective actually slower Mm -hmm. but usually if you take a system as a whole that's processing many things in parallel you know getting the net result is faster the net result is (laughs) is often significantly faster i mean that's so weird because just on the top level it's counterintuitive yeah you know, but then yeah you have to look at the entire system yeah it's like are you optimizing for like single thing uh stream or are you optimizing for many things at once and most of our applications today are optimized or should optimize for many things at once not single stream processing and so reactive is it's it it's gaining a lot more traction um because spring framework uh uses it um you don't have to use it in spring framework but they've made it a lot easier to be reactive and a lot of the spring folks have been trying to educate that developer group on on reactive but there's still a lot of confusion because because of async and because it's harder so i just had a a question from um somebody who was saying all right i need to call a a web request is going to come in it's going to call this thing that is async and uh, and I've got a problem because because that thing that it's calling it's going to respond at some point, and in their architecture they had already returned the HTTP response um, before that async thing had come back. So it's like a future or something. Yeah, but it's okay. but this is certainly something you don't want to do. Is your architectural pattern in reactive should be no, don't return the HTTP response until that thing that you have spawned. Uh, yeah, until until it is responded, mm-hmm. and and then return the HTTP response because then you get a full chain of of a full reactive chain. Um, whereas, I think there was a model pre reactive where yeah, you would you would say go off and do this thing, and you would return your HTTP response, and at that point you're not you're not reactive, um, and it's yeah, so it takes a, a bit of a mind shift to to be like, okay, how can this thing be non-blocking reactive the entire chain from, from start to finish? And, uh, and, and then, and then you have to deal with the programming model and all the async stuff associated with that. Um, So I also thought that part of reactive was some sort of, um, what do they call it? Uh, Back pressure or flow or, you know, uh, that's the thing. So that's in the reactive streams part of things, oh, and okay. and uh, and back pressure is is it is an important part of reactive I/O, non-blocking I/O, um, and it's also a, a important part of um, usually like actor systems. They need some way to be like like tell the, the for the consumer of some of some stream to say like hey i'm i'm backed up like like i'm i'm full i can't process anymore stop putting for new to, things stop putting input. new things into the input and mm-hmm. so to be able for the consumer to communicate that up to the producer um and back pressure really 
it's it's hard because with back pressure, let's say that your consumer can't keep up, but the producer needs to keep producing. And so what what's what does it do? It's like a video or an audio stream or something. It can't just go, okay, I'll tell everybody to stop talking. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so there's there's places where you can back pressure all the way through the system. Mm-hmm. And and that's really nice if you can do that. But there are other places where where you you can't do that. And so then you have to decide what your strategy is. Do you buffer? How long do you buffer for? What does your buffer do if it gets full? Does it start drop? Where? Do, what does it start dropping? Um, and so, so Aka Streams makes this very explicit in terms of back pressure because you, when you're using Aka Streams, you have to tell it what behavior you want when back pressure happens. And so, it at least puts that into the developer's hands instead of just what you, what what we did before back pressure was kind of a thing was was buff, buffers would just fill up and then things would crash basically is what, what would happen. Yeah. But that doesn't happen usually. That's right. So it should be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And so an, an interesting example of this is like an IOT device that's, that's sending sensor data. Mm-hmm. This is a simple use case where, you know, you've got, you've got all these IOT devices, they're sending all this sensor data and, uh, with a back pressure system, you've got some consumers that are taking that sensor data and need to consume it. Well, if those if those consumers can't keep off, up with that stream of IoT data, the ideal situation is that they could actually communicate that back pressure all the way back to the IoT devices and say, hey, like, like let off. Like, you know, instead of sending these uh, telemetry things every second, why don't you send them every 10 seconds for a while until I can keep up and you can actually control those devices to tell them to right to slow down yeah um but more often than not what you do is you put you put a a big um a, you put a big buffering device in between those things mm-hmm. uh kafka or whatever and your kafka system decouples that that consume the consumers from the actual stream of data and so then Kafka just becomes this giant, giant buffer. And, uh, and what so happens the, when the Kafka buffer overflows? Uh, Kafka has a, a bunch of different strategies for dealing oh, with this. So you could say, okay, on how if this is too full, now go pick out every 10th second one and throw away the other nine. Yep. Yeah. So okay, you can do you... log compaction. Mm-hmm. You With Kafka, you can do like max size of a topic. So you can say, all right, this topic can only be 10 gigs in size and it'll start rolling messages off the back, you know, just forgetting the messages that are the oldest. Um, so all sorts of different strategies for how you, how you deal with that. I think one of the big insights that I finally, I mean, I've, I've been struggling with concurrency for, I mean, ever since I was in graduate school and, um, I think one of the big insights that I had was, I mean, first of all, it's about efficiency. And the second is that it's just a big pile of strategies yeah. and you have to, and, and there isn't a nice, simple guideline because my brain always wants this, like, well, you know, give me the formula, Yeah. you know, get, I want to put this in and you tell me what to do. Nope. Yeah. It's not like that. And, and it's like understanding that. Yeah. is very liberating because you go, oh, I'm not, I'm not ridiculous for not understanding, you know, but being able to just pull the right one out because yeah. there isn't a right one. There's a, even, even within one system, several strategies might give you what you need. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think one of the challenges that we have today that, that causes some of this is that you as the developer have to decide what, what is your amount of time that you consider something to be blocking? What problem are you solving? Yeah. Like every, every time you do an operation on the CPU, it's essentially blocking. Uh, should you make those ace every single operation async? No. Like, so, okay. So if an operation happens in under 10 nanoseconds, is it, you know, do you leave that as blocking? Depends. Blocking, but then, Depends on your system. But then, if it takes twenty nanoseconds, should it? Should you wrap it in async and be maybe blocking? Maybe. Yeah. So, <laughs> what are you trying to do? Oh, and then, and then the streams one is interesting too because uh, how big is this list? Is it infinite? Uh, is it you know like is it fixed? If it's fixed size, 
how big is the fixed size? Is Are we talking a million records, a billion records, 10 records? And so you as the developer have to say, all right, well, I think that the size is going to be this, or I think the amount of time that it's going to take is this. And so here's the strategy that I think works well with that. And, and then you're running into the issue of uh, premature optimization. Right. And it's like, and, and this is where I love the, Maxim, you know, do the simplest, try the, try, not do, try the simplest thing that could possibly work. It's, it's a variation of Occam's razor, yeah. which people get wrong. Occam's razor, you'll see it in movies and Occam's razor, you know, people go, oh, it's Occam's razor. It says the simplest solution is the correct one. No, <laughs> that's not what Occam said at all. It was, it's, it's much more basic than that. It's just try the simplest solution first. Yeah. Cause if you think about it, it's like, that's just a, that's just a logical strategy. Why would you try the hardest one first? That's going to take way more time and it still might not work. Yeah. If you try the simplest one and it works, you're done. Yep. So it's as dumb as that. And yet, and, and, and I think that's the, the case with um, programming. It's like, and I, I kept running into this in Python cause I had come up from, um, assembly language and all that. And so I knew how all the little wheels and gears meshed. And uh, one of the first things I had to do was write a, um, write a, a floating point math library in assembly language for some Fun. processor. It was, it was actually, I, I don't remember anything about it, but, um, but, and then, and then I do something in a higher level language and I go, Oh, well, I know about this. So I will optimize. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference. And it took me a long time before I, like realize that, oh, in Python, it's probably already optimized. So don't <laughs> get clever because yeah. you think you know something about this problem. Yeah. And and that's the same thing with uh, any kind of concurrency. Yeah. Uh, it's like, don't, don't do it unless yeah. your program isn't running fast enough. <laughs> yeah. And then even then there's, you, before you get to concurrency, there's, there's other approaches that you yeah. can take. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and for me, I, uh, coroutines is just the simplest thing that, that is a nice place to start. And, um, and I, I like that, that Kotlin has just built that in and, and made that basically the default and coroutines work great with spring boot and other frameworks. So I can be non-blocking all the way down with coroutines and, and it's a easy programming model. And likely it's going to be sufficient performance. Um, yeah. And so you've been using Kotlin coroutines? Yeah. Yeah. Because we decided for various reasons it was too advanced to put into the book. Oh, yeah. It, the coroutines are there. They make async so easy. Mm -hmm. And and because I want to be reactive and non-blocking in the applications I build, then I'm using coroutines, which is what's interesting is that oftentimes, like if I'm in Spring Boot, I'm actually adapting from their reactive API, which is not coroutines because it's not even Kotlin. It's it's Java underneath the covers. I have to adapt from that reactive API to coroutines. Mm. But it, it uh, the coroutines library has made that super easy. They have all these adapters where you call you, you get like one of these reactor things back when you make a non-blocking call. And then you call like, I don't know, I don't know if it's dot await or something like that, a different, different um, terminology, depending on the library. But you call some extension method on that thing that turns it into a coroutine for you. And so they've done all the hard work of adapting these different reactive APIs to coroutines. And so it, it feels pretty natural and pretty good, even though they're not actually based on coroutines under the covers, but they're still non-blocking. This is one of the things that I've found really nice in Kotlin is the thought given to the programmer experience. Yeah. That's, it, it just seems so clear in virtually everything in the language. It's like, yeah, we want the programmer experience to be as nice as possible. And we're not, because I feel like Java did like a lot of compromises for got to get the thing out. You know, we're, we're going to be the default language across the internet and we got it. We're in a hurry to uh, just slop a lot of these things in. Oh, you know, uh, serialization. Oh, we'll fix that later. Lots and lots of things that are getting fixed later, but only 
somewhat fixed. Yeah. It's just, yeah, at some point, I think we need to move away from that language. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really write any job anymore. No. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I I can easily be reactive in Kotlin and, mm -hmm. and uh, appreciate that experience. It's it's pretty nice. Um, and hopefully, hopefully that'll be a, a gateway to helping other people be reactive on the JVM. Mm -hmm. um, I, I learned it and did it first in Scala and, and had to learn monads. Um, and now I love them, of course, but, but, uh, but Kotlin coroutines are so much more approachable for dealing with async. Uh, on the database front, there's actually a couple of, of new database libraries that are non-blocking. And I've I've been using some of them and, mm. and had pretty good experiences with them, mm. um, so that's that's been nice to see. There's one uh, called R2DBC, uh, which is I don't know reactive JDBC, <laughs> um, and that one's interesting. And then there's another one called JawSync, which is written in Kotlin uh, and and uh, native database drivers that are reactive. Mm. Um, I, in production, I've used a Scala one. Uh, which was, it has all these disclaimers, like don't use this in production, <laughs> but it was one of the first actual like uh, uh, relational database reactive drivers and it worked great in production, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, it's, I, you know, I think reactive is certainly here. People th have been saying that, that reactive kind of maybe goes away when we get loom um, <laughs> because then we've got fibers, but I think, you know, still it's going to be reactive. Like, like there's no reason to waste those threads. So our underlying uh, libraries are going to be non-blocking, mm -hmm. but maybe the programming model for Java developers gets a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And and then I know like Kotlin and Scala will be able to leverage those and probably be more efficient or something. And do you know, is Loom going to be part of Java 17? I don't know what the time frame on that yeah, is. I haven't looked at it, so... Yeah. I mean, it seems like since that's the next long-term support version, yeah. I would hope. Yeah. But it's all. Yeah. So eh, at the end of the day, it's, it, it is hard to go reactive, um, but people should. And it's a good, it's a good first, it's a good default. Mm -hmm. It's a good default. It's a good uh, place if, to try for, thing to try first. For, for speed ups. If you need to speed your program up, that's a good default. If you're if you're writing anything that is multiple user, like right. if you're writing a CLI, oh. there's you're, there's only ever going to be a single user at a time of that program. Mm -hmm. Like you don't need to be reactive. But if you're writing a service that's going to have concurrent requests, then reactive is a really good default. Okay. Yeah, I mean, see, there's a nice um, bit of lore. It's, it's like, because we, we say, oh, there's all these strategies for speeding things up. But if you know which ones you should try first, yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah. Because you go, oh, try this one. It's easier. If it works, you're done. If it doesn't, then you have to look for another strategy. Yeah. And, and I will say, um, caveat to that is if you don't have anything to be non-blocking on, then, then there's no reason to be reactive and non-blocking. Like if, mm -hmm. if, if you're, um, if, if what you're doing is just like full CPU intense, right. like, you know, if you don't have anything to non-block on, like, well, there's no boundaries. You're not crossing any of these boundaries. Yeah, then, then, then right. reactive is going to give you zero. Well, value. it'll actually cost yeah, because the programming model is more complex. Yeah. And, well, not only that, but you're doing context switch and the context switch. Yeah. That's yeah. so it'll actually slow you down. Yeah. Um, you keep mentioning spring boot and i know there's spring yeah what's the difference between spring and spring boot spring boot is just like the um developer experience kind of nice layer on top of spring framework uh -huh. so spring framework is the traditional uh dependency injection thing mm -hmm. and then spring boot is just some some nice um out of the box, easy ways to, to use spring framework. It's like pre-configured yeah. setups for different problems that you might want to solve. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
So it's still basically spring. It's spring underneath the covers, okay. but yeah, with some nice, nice layers on top. And the core idea of spring is dependency injection. Yes. Okay. I think we should sometime Talk delve into dependency, dependency injection, injection because yeah. it's like, I sort of see what's going on there, but it's not intuitive to me. Yeah. And, and then there are some people, I mean, I, I think I've read or seen some things where they're going, oh, this dependency injection thing is not bump kiss. Yes. Dependency injection is bump kiss. Well, bump kiss. Bump kiss. What's the word there? I, I, I don't know. Anyway. Anyways, is that topic your... for another? Okay. Yes, that is my perspective. And okay. we'll do that. Well, then I, podcast. then that makes it even better. Yeah. I'm not a fan of dependency injection. Cool. I, well, I feel like that kind of thing gives you a better insight rather than somebody going, ah, oh, dependency injection is awesome. Then I don't know, you know, the trade-offs. Yeah. But if you're already uh, thinking that it's... I do a lot of dependency injection. So but you don't like it. It's not purely functional. Ah, uh, okay. That's, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah Which we should... We'll save that for another we episode. We should but, save that for another um, episode. That'll be a good one. Okay. Cool. Well, All that was right. fun. Yeah.